Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, and if you're listening to this on the day that the podcast comes out, Tuesday, February 6th, it is primary day here in Nevada. Uh, We have a whole podcast that came out on January 9th explaining why this year's primary slash caucus week here uh, in Nevada is so complicated. Go back and listen to that if you haven't heard it. Uh, It will help you understand a lot of what we're going to be talking about today which is early voting numbers. This is a complicated year for the election, so we're going to jump right into that and talk about race calls and early voting numbers with editor John Ralston and reporter Sean Galanka. After that, I talk with education reporter Rocio Hernandez about Jesus Jara potentially stepping down as the superintendent of Clark County, the fifth largest school district in the United States. And at the end of the show, I talk with general manager of KUNR Reno Public Radio, Brian Dugan, about our partnership with KUNR and how important it is uh, to support local nonprofit journalism, uh, especially during this election season. Alrighty, well, I am joined by CEO slash editor John Ralston. Welcome, John, to the podcast. I'm also joined by our reporter, Sean Galanka, data, data whiz. <laughs> so welcome, you guys. Thanks, Joey. Hi, Joey. Today we're talking, if you are hearing this today, the podcast comes out, it is, it is primary day here in Nevada, and we are going to be talking about some of the early voting numbers that have come in. Uh, later today, you will be finding out some results. It is a complicated year for, for primaries and caucuses. If you, if you don't know what I'm talking about, go back and listen. Three episodes ago, we talked about the the specifics and mechanics of what's going on this year and why we're having a Republican primary and a caucus, which one counts. We're having only a Democratic primary. It's quite complicated. We're not going to get into it other than just to mention that. Go listen to that or read our coverage to, to learn more. But there has been early voting. John, you always have a, you always love to follow early voting numbers. So just to start off, what do the early voting numbers look like right now? Well, you should ask Sean for the specific numbers since he's been tracking them in a granular way. But the biggest difference besides all the primary caucus confusion is the mail ballots that generally have not been used in this way because they they became a universal ballot, a mail ballot state after COVID. And so that's different. And as Sean has tracked, he can give you the exact numbers. Nearly 90% of the votes have been cast in the one week early voting period by mail. Even Republicans seem to trust mail ballots. It's a shocker. (laughs) Yeah, Joey. I mean, I'll note that at the time we're recording this, we have voting numbers as of Friday morning. So we're going to miss a couple days of mail ballot returns and one final day of early voting. But as of right now, the turnout in in the Democratic primary is about 85,000 and 87 percent of that is, is mail votes. So. That's that's the vast majority. There have been kind of like one to two thousand people per day showing up to vote in person during early voting. And it's a similar story on the Republican side, just to a lesser extent, about 53,000 votes, also 87 percent of the vote by mail. So like John said, surprising, I think that the Democrats and Republicans are using mail ballots at the pretty much the same clip so far. But I think that kind of goes to show that people are, are are taking advantage of that system now that it's in place. It seems interesting that people that Republicans are voting by mail because their mail ballots, while it will count in theory, that there will be no delegates awarded to anyone that's voting by mail because the caucus is the only thing that counts and the caucus does not allow early voting or vote by mail. So what what does that tell you when you when you see these Republicans voting by mail? I mean, Joey, I, I think that's just the ease of voting. Right. So even though it's not the contest that counts, it's not the caucus. Donald Trump isn't on the ballot. 
if you're a registered Republican in Nevada and you're, you aren't one of the few thousand that has opted out of receiving a mail ballot, so we're talking about hundreds of thousands of Republican voters who have received a mail ballot, it's pretty easy, I think, to fill it out and drop it off at, at a, a ballot box or put it in the mail. I think that was kind of the point of why people were advocating for this mail voting law was the ease of voting and expanded access. And so I think that's what we're seeing even with a primary that doesn't really count for much. Joey, I think we've seen, and we've seen it in the last cycle uh, for sure, is that people like voting for, by mail yeah, because of what Sean said. It's easy. And most people are not conspiracy theorists who are worried that their mail ballot is going to arrive on time or or, or, or something like that, or it's going to be tampered with. The, sure, there, there's going to be a relatively small percentage who will vote in person because they don't trust mail ballots. But people do like, to use again Sean's word, the ease of voting. That's There's empirical data to, to, to point that out. I do have one little quibble with what Sean said and what a lot of people nationally are saying and what other reporters have said, which is that the primary doesn't count. Now, technically, it doesn't count towards getting delegates to the national convention. But I have made the argument on Twitter and in my newsletter and on various podcasts that Nikki Haley made a huge mistake in not trying to get it to count for what's really important with the early stage, which are not delegates. Nevada gets 26 delegates to the Republican National Convention. You need 1,215 to, to get, the, get the nomination. It's not significant. But if she could have said she won the state in a landslide, that's the headline that's going to go out on CNN and everywhere else. Haley wins Nevada primary. But now, because she hasn't done that, she's allowed them to run, essentially, a none of the above campaign against her. And so it could be a somewhat embarrassing result for I have no idea who would vote just to vote none of the above in a primary. But there probably are going to be a significant number who do. Well, uh, apparently Governor Joe Lombardo, John, is, is, right. is one of the people who cares enough to do that. And I mean, not to debate that point too much, but to defend myself, I, I said it doesn't mean much. And I think right. that's that goes to, to what you said, though, John, because Nikki Haley has done pretty much zero work in the state of Nevada. I think that's why it doesn't mean much. I mean, even with what the Nevada GOP has done, I think she could have made it a little bit more significant. But, you know, she has not done the work to do that. One thing I want to talk about when we talk about early voting, and John, I want you to answer this, which is just, should people care about these numbers? Why should the average Nevadan care when we talk about these early voting numbers that are coming out? I mean, it is a race for president. It's the most important race in the country. But I think people should care, Joey, if none of the above gets a huge number in either primary, right? If there is a big none of the above in the Democratic primary, that is going to be a real warning sign for the Democrats here. And nationally, they don't want him to look bad here. And so I think people, I think that's going to be a very interesting number to watch. Well, talking about voting, I, I want to I shift topics just a little bit here to what's going to happen once, once these numbers do start coming in. And, and, and that's that the media usually starts doing race calls. And that's the thing that we're going to be doing. And, and I think that for the average person, maybe they don't understand what the math that goes into a race call or, or when and why we decide to make race calls. What is the thought process behind a race call? I think there is some, too much eagerness in the part of the national media often to make race calls. And we've seen some really big embarrassments in the past in presidential races, not so much in, 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 in the nominating process, but in the actual race itself. But as Sean knows, and he did as good a job of it as anybody in 2022, 
you can at some point say there are not enough votes left out there to change the outcome. And so we can say that Catherine Cortez Masto has defeated Adam Laxalt, for instance, in, in the Senate race. You can do it if you're paying attention to this. And so people are interested, right? They want to know when they can click off the indie site and go to sleep late on election night, right? And so so, so we let them know. Just on the, the point of the importance of this, people are very passionate about politics and about elections, and people have staked a lot of their time just invested in, in following these races. And certainly the outcome of these races is going to have a big effect on people's lives. I think that's why we make such a big deal about covering it in so much detail. And so being accurate is is more important than anything. But I think expediency is also key there because of a level of passion about this subject and, and just the importance of it. We're tracking turnout throughout the early voting period from mail voting all the way through election night. So that way we know how many ballots are left to be counted, how many votes might still come in for a certain person. Let's talk about those numbers. So what is the what is the math behind it? What, how do you determine it? Well, really quick, Joey, just on that point, I think some of this is not about the numbers because, for example, we're going to have three contests next week and I can give you a race call for two out of the three right now. I mean, <laughs> Joe Biden is going to win the Democratic primary and Donald Trump is going to win the Republican caucus because I think that's just a state of play in, in these races. I mean, I'm, I'm going to hedge my bet and say none of these candidates could compete with Nikki Haley, perhaps. I, there's been some messaging from Republicans to drive that none of the none of the above vote. So we'll see what happens there. But just to address that point, Joe, I think there's there's more at play specifically in this type of race than just the numbers. And I think I want to make one point. I I, I paused for a minute because I just put out Sean's race calls on Twitter for, for, for the primary. So everyone knows now that it's okay. No, but seriously, the one <laughs> thing that we would never do, never, Joey, is we would never make a race call before all everyone essentially has voted. We might do it before all of the mail ballots, which can't come in after the election, are, are counted. If it's a big, if it's, a, if it's an obvious, there aren't enough votes left. Again, we know approximately how many mail ballots are left on election night. We can say that. But in a very close race, we would never do that. And certainly we would never make race calls be before all of the polls have closed. We just wouldn't do it. You know, that, I think that's part of why people in these recent elections, everyone's waiting on Nevada. The media wants to make sure that the, the numbers are clear and they can make an accurate call. And because races are so close, you spend a lot of time waiting for mail ballots to be counted. I mean, Nevada has laws that allow ballots to come in after election day if they've been postmarked sent in by election day. And so it just takes time to, to count the votes. There's only so many people who can put ballots into a into a tabulator. Nevada is one of six, seven, maybe eight states, and there may not even be that many that are going to determine who wins the Electoral College. And so we better be very, very careful when we call Nevada who we're calling it. Cool. Well, I, I think with that, we'll, we'll probably wrap it up. You're not going to talk about the magic eight ball that you use under your desk to actually make the race calls, John. <laughs> I disclose that here, Joey. I just flip a coin because <laughs> every, every Nevada race is so close. I mean, 50-50, right? It's one, one of them has got to be right. Exactly. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for, for, for explaining all this. Hopefully that this is enlightening to the listeners and then it helps them understand and pull back the curtain a little bit into how we operate and what we're doing here. But Sean, John, I uh, love that your names rhyme. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. <laughs> Thanks, Joey. Thank you, Joey.
All right. Well, I am here with education reporter Rocio Hernandez. Rocio, thank you for joining me. Yeah, good to be here. Yeah, and and you're talking to me today because of a lot of drama that's happening in the Clark County School District. I feel like there's always some drama in the school district, but there's kind of a lot going on right now. Superintendent Jesus Jara has proposed a resignation by, or basically a contract buyout, and then one of the unions is basically saying they don't want that to happen. Can you explain the whole situation to me? <laughs> it is a lot to unpack. <laughs> so we, I feel like a lot of people were surprised Ish, when the news came out last week that Superintendent Jesus Jara had submitted his a letter of resignation, and that's a story that we broke first. So we don't really know yet officially what is behind this resignation, but ever since the news dropped, there's been a lot of speculation about what could be driving this. I don't think it's any secret to anyone in the state that Jara's tenure has been pretty unpopular for the past recent years. Recently, we were at the teacher union's press conference where they talked about their understanding that during the pandemic years, that it was a difficult time to be a superintendent, not just for Jara, but just anyone, anyone in a superintendent role anywhere in the country. It was something unexpected. But that since then, they can't excuse anymore the issues that persist even still four years after the pandemic within the school district. And a lot of those issues, of course, around like student absenteeism, student proficiencies in reading and writing and math, those issues were there before the pandemic. But I think what the community has been wanting to see is a leader who can help the district move forward after this. And I don't think that community members feel that Jara is the leader or that he's being very open with them or that the district has maintained like this level of transparency on some of those issues. So that's setting the stage here of Superintendent Jara's resignation. I've seen some lawmakers calling it welcome news. So uh, I don't think anyone's necessarily too disappointed that he's leaving. But I do think that right now, a lot of the questions are what happens next? Why is this happening? And of course, like you mentioned, his contract buyout. Did Jara respond at all to any of this? He said in his letter, which did not get, again, go into the reasons why he's resigning, But he said that it would be conditional on the school board approving a severance package that would include at least one year's worth of pay for him, which would be about $400,000, in addition to like paying him his unused sick leave, unused uh, vacation days. The teachers union calculates that that would be valued at about $500,000. So for, for a lot of people, they're seeing this as the superintendent who is not necessarily leaving the district in a good foot, now getting this big check as a sort of reward for the work that he's done here. What would happen if the school district decides not to give him this buyout? Would he then either decide to stay or, or like, he have to get fired or something? It, it From the options that are laid out in the board agenda, it seems like it would set up some sort of battle between the board and the superintendent, which I don't think anyone really wants to see drag out. Mm-hmm. In his letter, he did say that his resignation, which would be effective February 21st-ish, would be contingent on the board approving the terms that he set out. The board has said also in their statement, and the only statement that they've put out since, is that they see this departure of Jara as something that's mutually beneficial for the school district and for him because they're trying to set themselves up for the next five years of the school district. And so they said that this would be a good breaking point for someone new to come in and set the tone for the school district for the next five years. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and during the the legislative session this last year in 2023, it seemed like the lawmakers were pretty critical of Jara. It seemed like the writing was on the wall for this to happen in some way or another. Yeah, since the past year, and a lot of that year was taking up 2023 with the contract dispute between the school district and the teachers union. There's been a lot of calls for Jara to resign over that, over how long it dragged out, over how unhappy teachers were during this time, over the district's handling of the situation, calling for an impasse, dragging it into this arbitration process, which did end last December. But it wasn't clear if it was going to have a resolution soon or not after the the district called an impasse. So, yeah, like you mentioned, we had lawmakers, top Democratic officials, Speaker Steve Yeager, Senate Majority Leader Nicole Cannizzaro calling for Jara to resign or calling for the board to terminate Jara. So we did see that in addition to the calls that the teachers union has been making for the past year as well. Yeah. And has Jara ever expressed any like desire to leave the school district? We have seen that Jara last year did apply or was in consideration for some school district uh, job in Florida for, to become a superintendent. And he's always up until this point said that he wants to stay in the district and that he wants to continue doing the good work. So even when you saw those calls officially, you never really heard him say that he was poised to leave. Whenever we talk about the school district and changes that are happening, I, I always want to know, you know, what does this mean for teachers and students? How is this going to affect them? I think right now the biggest concern is if Jara isn't in place, who will be then? And that's the other major concern that community members and teachers and students are having right now. Normally, you'll see school districts, I think, especially in the size of Clark County, we're the fifth largest school district in the country. They'll do these big, expansive nationwide surges that cost thousands of dollars, take a couple of months, but they usually bring in people who are well qualified for the position, who get vetted by the board, and community members have the opportunity to see the board interview them in person. They'll do like these little uh, community events so that people can get to know them. And then at the end of this big process, there'll be public meetings where the board gets to vote on the, the candidate that they see best and People get to speak during a public comment period about their thoughts about the candidates and weigh in on which candidate they feel is the best fit for their school district. Right now, it doesn't seem like the school board in Clark County is going to do that. They've set an agenda for uh, the next board meeting where they've stated that they're intending on appointing the deputy superintendent, Brenda Larson Mitchell, as JAR's replacement. So, so can you tell me a little bit about, about Brenda Larson Mitchell? There's not a lot of info on her online, but what, from what I can tell, she's been in the district for a long time. 1994 is around when she started. So she's been there quite a long time. And you would think that with those credentials, with her experience being in the district that long, people would be happy with that replacement. But we've heard the teachers union and we have heard other community members say that they're fearful that because she's been there a long time and she's worked so closely with Jara, that she'll just be a continuation of the same leadership that they saw under Jara and that nothing will really change and that the district won't be able to move forward in the way that they'd like to. All right, well, I am here with the general manager of KUNR Reno Public Radio, Brian Dugan. Hi, Brian, how you doing? How's it going, Joey? Thanks, doing good. Good, good. Yeah, we, we're talking today because the Indy and KUNR have always had a, a partnership. The Indy Matters airs on KUNR on Sundays, and and we've done a lot of partnering in the past when it comes to like reading our stories on air and stuff. But we've kind of enshrined that in writing. We've got this this kind of official partnership now between KUNR Reno Public Radio 
and the Nevada Independent. And so uh, tell me a little bit about this. Sure. Yeah. So like you mentioned, KUNR and the Indy have had a longstanding informal partnership where we have yes. regularly aired your stories on our broadcasts, and we've even partnered on some pretty big stories over the last few years. And so this this new partnership, it, it's really just sort of formalizing it into a, a, a content sharing agreement, which is a bland way of saying we're just going to run each other's stories um, and try to expand the audience. And this all came about from a conversation that your editor and CEO, John Ralston, and I had uh, last fall, where we were just sort of brainstorming ways to basically attract more attention to local journalism and and the need to support it as a cause. And so KUNR and, and the Indy, both being nonprofits and us being a, a public radio station, there's a lot of similarities in our mission. And one of those is expanding access to a quality local journalism, but also educating the public on the need to, to support it directly. Yeah, I always I always go back to something that former indie reporter Daniel Rothberg told me where he said that there's there's not enough journalists for the number of stories that there are out there. Um, and so this is kind of a way that both of our organizations can support each other and also support the mission of nonprofit local journalism. So you'll be seeing a lot more partnerships with you guys and, and hopefully we'll see stories coming out of both newsrooms. But to promote that, we have an event on Friday, right? On February 9th. We do. Yeah. John and I maybe questionably agreed to do a Ask Me Anything at Craft <laughs> in Midtown Reno. Should be a, a lively and, and fun event though, where I'm I'm very much looking forward to it. Yeah. So it's it starts at 5.30 PM at Craft Wine and Beer. Ty over there has graciously given us a back room to host the event. So mm-hmm. we're anticipating a, a pretty good turnout and John and I will be there to sort of talk about this broader issue about local journalism, but, all, but to also take questions from listeners and readers that I think a, a, a big thing that, that local journalism needs to do is be accountable to the people who we serve and taking questions, even spicy ones, <laughs> um, we need to be there to answer them. Because I think there's a lot of misperceptions about journalism. So we want to do more of these kinds of events. We want to do more joint events with the Indy between the KUNR and the Indy as, as this relationship grows. And we'll also talk about our past wins. I mean, we, we did some big investigative work together not too long ago, and we want to continue to do that, that kind of work together as well. So that's that's where we want to take this partnership, and, and we'll, we'll be telling that story on Friday. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. And before I get into the credits, I wanted to let you guys know that we have a new podcast called On the Trail, hosted by my sometimes co-host here on Indie Matters, Jacob Solis. Uh, he talks with reporters at the Indie about all things election and politics related. If when you listen to the Indie Matters, you feel like we're only scratching the surface and you really want to dig your nails into the complex, nuance, sometimes goofy world of Nevada politics, that is the podcast you should be listening to. It's called On the Trail with the Nevada Independent. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. But with that, I wanted to thank John Ralston, Sean Galanka, Rocio Hernandez, and Brian Dugan for being on the show today. This show is produced and edited by me, Joey Lovato, with additional help from Michelle Rendell's, my editor. Uh, we have music from Emily Pratt, Storyblocks, June Pearson, and myself. And with that, thank you for listening to Indie Matters, and we'll talk to you next week.